So Nehemiah 8.13 through 18 is Feast of Booths. And then when you get into chapter 9, you actually get into uh, what is equivalent to the Day of Atonement. Now they're kind of flip-flop in the way they're arranged there, but uh, Nehemiah 9, Nehemiah 8, they're linked. The people hear God's Word. They weep in response to the reading of the Word because their forefathers had sinned as they were reminded of that. So, you know, it was a time for a feast, though. And you remember in Nehemiah 8, they were told not to weep and grieve, right? What were they told to do? Rejoice. The joy of the Lord is my strength. And that's a famous, famous verse. It's right there in Nehemiah 8. And uh, so, uh, and that's right in uh, verse 11, right? Do not be grieved for the, or verse 10, right at the end of 10 going into 11. For, do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So that's what they're told. But after that, um, you have the end of the Feast of the Booths after you get that. Uh, then the people gather together and they fast. They have sackcloth and dirt on them. Okay? And so they're expressing their grief on what the Word of God brought to them. They, they rejoiced. Now it's a time of grieving. And um, they ask God to, um, to for, you know, it's a, it's a forgiveness in a way. They're asking God to take note of what, you know, what they've done in the past, and yet here they are, they're, they're repenting. And uh, this prayer that's going to be in chapter 9 is one of the great prayers in all the Bible. Now, in Daniel 9, you have a great prayer. Daniel 9, and, and you remember that uh, in there, he's praying for his people, and he's, you know, he's talking about um, Michael the archangel and, and the war that goes on in the heavens. And then in Ezra 9, it's all 9. 9, 9, 9, 9. <laughs> Ring a bell to you there. <laughs> but Ezra 9, Daniel 9, now we have Nehemiah 9. Ezra is the book just before this. Ezra and Nehemiah are related together there. Um, but um, in this prayer of confession, it's full of rich instruction. And it's really about who God is. That's where you always start. It's about who God is, what man is, and how God graciously works on the behalf of sinful man. Um, we're so prone to sin. And that's what you're going to see in 9. To get up to that aspect, you have chapter 8 and you have the Feast of Booths. Now, there are seven feasts, right? <laughs> and the very first one, uh, I wonder how we're going to do on this. Let's see. That works. Okay. The And you can find these in Leviticus 23. You can find uh, some more information out of Exodus 23 a little bit there. But uh, the first feast is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, this is given in the Old Testament, but it's all a picture. These feasts are pictures of Christ. And in that same week, Unleavened Bread, you have the Feast of Passover. And of course, all of this was first celebrated when? Or first done? with Moses, right? And from there, they would continue to do these year after year. Is, can you guys see this? Yeah. yeah. Do I need to take it back a little bit? Oh, okay. There you go. Yeah, all right? Is that all right? 
Okay? And so, but they continue on. And really, we know that the Passover is dealing with Christ being, you know, our substitute. Uh, he is the Lamb of God, takes away the sin of the world, right? Unleavened bread, and that he is absolutely sinless, right? right? And that's what leaven represented, for the most part, represented sin. Unleavened bread represents, uh, it's not tainted. Christ is without sin. And also, in all in that same week, within about eight days, you have one more festival. These old Jewish holidays. Yeah. And it's called the Feast of First Fruits. And so here you have sinless Christ who dies for the people. He's the Lamb of God. Dies for our sin, right? And then you have First Fruits which is really found in 1 Corinthians 15, and that is dealing with the resurrection of Christ. So really, you're getting the gospel right here. You're getting Christ, are you? The great pictures. Christ is sinless. He's the one who dies for the sin of His people, and then He resurrects. And there's one more that's 50 days later after the first fruits day. All these are three in in one almost. That's called what's penta mean? Five, or in this case fifty, Pentecost. And in the book of actually that was the Pentecost was first first happened when God gave the law. And then in the New Testament he gives the what? The Spirit. And so that was the coming of the Holy Spirit to the body of Christ. Now, that is called the... You have the uh, latter rains and then you have... What? Well, this is all happening like within the springtime. Then in the summer... They have nothing but it's just it's just heat. It's dry. It's a lot hotter than what we even have. It's just completely dry, and so that's that's the first part of the festivals. If there's seven festivals and there's three more to go, right? Every one of these have been fulfilled. Jesus is our unleavened bread. As a matter of fact, in Second Corinthians, Jesus is called our Passover. He is our Passover lamb. He in 1 Corinthians 15 is the first fruits that when you have uh, a crop you gather in, it's the very first time you bring it in, it's guaranteeing that you have more to come. He's the first fruits. He's the first to raise from the dead. There will be more coming. And then Pentecost would be the Holy Spirit. So those are all fulfilled. When did Christ do the unleavened bread? That was. What did you say? Well, there was a feast. Well, when you, are, you, are you talking about like during the Passover and they mm-hmm. ate uh, you know the, the the bread, drank the wine? And of course, you know he said that you know remember me, and as you take these, as you do this thing, you know you're you're actually remembering what Christ did. Then in the fall. You get the Feast of Trumpets. You getting what's happening here? 
you have a long time between Pentecost and Trumpets. These are all within like a 50-day or so period. And then you have the long, hot summer, and then comes the Trumpets. We're waiting for that trumpet, like in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians 4, it's going to be a trumpet blown. It's uh, the trumpet. Uh, God calls his elect. God calls the, the people out of Israel. Anyway, that's the Feast of Trumpets. And, uh, of course, we wait for that, right? And then you have the Day of Atonement. And this is whenever people see the one who took away their sins. You know, of course, there's going to be a national mourning and a grieving for the nation of Israel according to Zechariah chapter 12 and of course, chapter 13 and 14, especially 12 there. It's all dealing with the Day of Atonement where the people recognize their sin. They look upon Him whom they pierced and they mourn for Him as an only Son. And uh, then you have... So Christ is going to come back. There's going to be a trumpet blown. We know that uh, there is the completion. Sin will be finally done away with in that sense for uh, for His people. Uh, and we'll be living in that. And then you have the Feast of Booths. And that's the one we're looking at tonight. And this one. Feast of Booths is where, matter of fact, in John 1.14 says, anybody know what it is? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us the word dwelt means tabernacle there we go now we're going pitch tent that's exactly the idea and of course what they did they lived out in in uh, out in the wilderness whenever they were first brought along see they were to celebrate all these uh, on on a yearly basis and they, they would uh, actually have uh, palm branches, whatever branches, whatever stuff they could get together. Uh, and it's in the fall. It's like in October, September, October, all of three of these are happening. Jesus is all of these. You know, He is the one who dwells in tabernacles and will dwell with Him forever. So there's kind of the outline of the seven feasts. You find it in Leviticus 23 and other places, but 23 covers the most. And then we find it here. They revive these feasts back up because they've been held captive in Babylon, and uh, of course, then the people, came, some of the people, came back to Jerusalem, and they hadn't done anything. And Nehemiah built the wall, and after he built the wall, everything started happening, didn't it? The reading of the Word of God, and people then uh, repenting, and under, as they understood the Word of God, and and then they joy uh, together and have that great feast. So, here we are at verse 13. They're going to do the Feast of Booths first, and then they're going to do the Day of Atonement. So, like if, uh, in the Christian church, if some, for some period of time, just thinking comparison-wise, circumstances, if we, were to, if we were to look at a period of time when we could not celebrate the, the uh, communion, Lord's table or baptisms would be kind of a similar type of yeah 
saying that we we could not partake in what we've been given to do as as a people, as a body, Christ's body, just like they were as his people, not doing those things, they're not able to do so, you know, they were captives. So, like if we were in persecution, there may be, you know, problems with having <laughs> being able to yeah to do to do the communion and no. have baptism. Fully you know, worship like we are. And that would be uh, would it'd be a mess, wouldn't it? Yeah. Desperately. Yeah. That puts it into reality of what it would be for us. That's what I was trying to do. Yeah. That's a good thought because that's what. Uh, that's the way it was to them. That's what was happening. And all of a sudden, they discovered that we're supposed to be doing this. What keeps us from doing it? And uh, so, here we are at verse 13 of chapter 8. And we won't spend a lot of time on it. I'll probably just comment as we read it. Then on the second day, the heads of fathers' households of all the people, the priests and the Levites, were gathered to Ezra the scribe. Remember, Ezra had... Uh, he was the one who was reading the Word. Whenever they stood, people stood for hours, didn't they? Yeah, out there in the uh, out in the weather outside, and here it is. They want more. They can't get enough of it. I love this. Love this. That they might gain insight into the words of the law. So you have, have the heads of the father's household. Uh, you have the priest and the Levites. Um, of course, Ezra the scribe is all a big part of this, and they want to know more what the word of God means. It's God's people do that. They they want to get fed. They want to get around. God's people, they want to get around the Word of, of God where it's read, where it's taught. So they found written in the law how the Lord had commanded through Moses that the sons of Israel should live in booths during the feast of the seventh month. So they thought, wow, that's really something. Those people actually lived out there in the wilderness and they, they used whatever it was to give them some kind of shelter. So now, and, and that celebrates what they had done then as God provided for them. And he gave them all that they needed during that time. And it's reminding them, said, why don't we do this? We're supposed to do this. They didn't, they didn't really have the Word, did they? And, and so they didn't really know or had forgotten all of this. And uh, So anyway, um, they said, whatever Moses commanded, they should live in booths during the feast seventh month. So they proclaimed and circulated a proclamation in all their cities and in Jerusalem saying, go out to the hills and bring olive branches and wild olive branches, myrtle branches, palm branches, branches of other leafy trees to make booths or tabernacles, whatever it was. As it is written, so the people went out, brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and the square of the water gate and the square of the gate of Ephraim. It just, you know, it's kind of like a um, big weekend concert or something where people just kind of camp out you know people get together and uh, I know that's one of they, those Native American things oh yeah they set up what do they people. call that uh, 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 powwow powwow or uh, yeah I don't know and, and, and <laughs> the, the white men did almost the same thing whenever they'd gather and bring their the skins and all the what, yeah. what they trapped and such um, yeah, exactly. I, I can't think of the name of that. In the military, when they set up their bivouacs, you know, the, the camp, they'd have all their different military tents. Yeah. You get, yeah. You get a picture of their, a bunch of these 
temporary dwelling. Be kind of exciting with other people doing it. When you're by yourself, you're, you know, oh, what? it starts to rain. You go, I'm going back in the house. <laughs> you know, but other people are out there, and you know, it's kind of cool. Sometimes, even when it, you know, the weather's not the greatest, but people all just kind of get together and and uh, you know, kind of rough it. And and so that's what they that's what they still still kind of do. Uh, I know in Jerusalem today, Zola Levitt. Some of you guys might be familiar with him and. He would uh, he would demonstrate what they would do. There'd be people, you know, where there are roofs out on the house, and that's that was their yard basically. And they'd put up a, you know, these little booths and uh, tabernacle. You know. Uh, yeah, yeah, really. Wouldn't, wouldn't it be something if you could get people to gather together whenever they gather for the Fourth of July? Wouldn't it be neat if all Christians? And that, it's not going to happen. Anyway. <laughs> Be pitching tents out there. <laughs> it would be. We're not commanded to do this, but they were. They were. But I, you know, I, this was all about feast, and and you're dealing with a, a time of joy and God's people getting together and worshiping God, and uh, so they were all over the place, all over Jerusalem. There it says in 17, the entire assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in them. So everybody was a part of this. Everybody got involved. The sons of Israel had indeed not done so from the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, to that day. And there was great rejoicing. They were having a great time. That's what God wanted them to do. You know, he wants us to rejoice. And so he, he reads from the book, he read from the book of the law of God daily from the first day to the last day. And they celebrated the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the ordinance. So there you go. That's, they wanted to, to do what those people had done, and they did it. From there on out, they were supposed to continue that on. Um, I just saw that light come on again, yeah. Bob. <laughs> that light, I was in here last night, and it came on, and ah, all right. And then it wasn't on tonight, was it? Yeah. Oh, it was? Well, it's going off and on. That's good to know. Okay. So, but you notice we have lights in every one of these now. Yeah. At least something. No, it's a little brighter. Uh, that, it was supposed to have been fixed. Evidently, I guess it wasn't, was it? It's still coming down. One thing at a time. <laughs> okay, uh, let's turn back to Leviticus 23 just for a moment. Let's look at that. This is where you have the giving of the law. You know, this is the Pentateuch, and this is where these were established. Uh, we don't necessarily celebrate these particular feasts that we gave here um, today, but in, in one sense, it's really good to teach it. Uh, of course, we've done the Passover, or to some degree, uh, in in our church here, and down through the years, we used to do it and taught it many times at different churches. Are there any? Uh Denominations that would call themselves Christians that still do. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, Yahweh people. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, you're, and you're usually most of them borderline or are on the cult basis. Okay. Now the the uh, Jews for Jesus, mm-hmm. I because they pretty well follow most of these ceremonial rituals uh, to quite the degree. Mm-hmm. Some of them more than others. But yeah, Jews for Jesus. I know they would believe in all these. That that I know of. That's that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. 
Now, whenever I did it, I did it as a teaching tool right. and saying, you're not bound by the law to do this, but it sure is neat to do it because we'd, <laughs> we'd have the food and just, you know, just a massive amount of different things going on and then going through the whole teaching. It's really about God's plan and His sovereign purpose. and It's an incredible story. It shows that everything God set up was not for just setting it up, but there's all those seeds and sacrifices and everything He's done. There's always been a purpose. Christ came and fulfilled every one of those seeds. And the three still to come. Well, he's, yeah, he's fulfilled these, yeah. and these are yet to be fulfilled, aren't they? But he is the one that, in another sense, that he like is the, the rapture, fulfiller. The rapture, you could say the trumpet could be on that kind of idea or something like that, too. Yeah. So how did they teach the Messiah in, in, uh, in the Pentateuch? Well, they gave, God gave, like, blocks, building blocks, you know? Here's block A, and... Here's a block and has a B on it, you know, and that's but that's how he taught. Basic and the 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 temple is the same thing. Tabernacle, everything in there is is a picture of Christ. So, right, so really other other Christians who would kind of take a more a millennial kind of view would they would they also agree that there are still some of those that are yet to be fulfilled or? That's a good point. Uh, Doubt if they even talk about it. It it might be that they might say Jesus has fulfilled all those, you know. And of course, they would take the the atonement and say, well, that would be the cross. And of course, you have the Passover there and uh, the trumpets. I I doubt if they they usually don't take things in the future. That's that's the problem with that. And I think it blows the picture if that would be the case. Because there's a time period between these first four and then the last three, and I think it shows the first coming and the second coming. Right. Um, yeah, we know trumpet. We hear Rosh Hashanah when the Jewish people are celebrating. That's when we hear Rosh Hashanah. That's when we the trumpet and stuff like that. Can I do that? Can I do that trumpet? <laughs> you ever heard those? <laughs> it <all> has. <laughs> I couldn't do that last week or Sunday. <laughs> Huh? You hear a lot of people talking of um, types of yep. Christ. Is that what these, these are? These are types of Christ. Okay. Typology. Right. Types of Christ. All throughout the Old Testament, you see types of Christ. Moses is a type of Christ. He's a prophet. He's a priest. He's a king. Um, the law is, is a type of Christ. He fulfilled that. Uh, of course, I was saying the uh, the tabernacle is a beautiful type of Christ. You have David, who is a type of Christ, him being the king, right off the bat. Mm-hmm. It's all pointing to Christ. A lot of people don't seem like they ever can make that connection. Do everything that God required everybody to do, even when He took them to make memorials and stuff like that. That's not, that wasn't for a waste or just give a simple something. And he's always pointing to the Messiah to come, and that's exactly what he's speaking about, is to say, well, why are we, so, why are we doing this? Is exactly what we're supposed to bring to do that to make you say there's something more than what I'm understanding. That's what these speaks were about. Right. He said, the Jewish people. It's, it's exciting. Uh, yeah, I'm glad you said that. Uh, type. Types of Christ. It's, uh, of course, the, the Book of Ruth. Bob, you remember when uh, we, we did that at the uh, church over there, you know, and you... Uh, that because of the beauty there of the Redeemer. A beautiful picture of, of redemption. Just those four chapters. Alistair Begg had been doing that for a little while. Yeah. Yeah. 
Did he finish on that? Yeah, I thought so. Okay, so after looking at those, we can say, I have to wonder how much did the priest and some of these guys teaching this bring this out and that this is showing the Messiah. This Because the tabernacle was all about showing the Messiah. It's, it's not explicit in that, but I think they're understanding that this is what the main promise is about. It's pointing to to Christ. They had to know some, you know. They had, you know, Abraham saw Christ in a way that, um, you know, because of the the idea of the resurrection. Even if he killed his son Isaac, he would resurrect, and so th- that teaching was there. It wasn't in its fullest that we have. The Holy Spirit was always in the Old Testament, but He's not operating in His fullest through individuals as He leads us, as He lives inside of us today. The Holy Spirit you know, is there too, but it comes out in His fullest. Christ comes out in fullest when you see the Gospels. So, okay, we, uh, we go back to uh, Nehemiah. Now we get into where uh, I've got it outlined. Does that kind of help uh, getting an idea of what the Feast of Booths is about? All of a sudden, next thing you know, they're talking about repentance and the Day of Atonement. Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur. Yep. Uh, Now, on the 24th day, first verse, uh, chapter 9, of this month, the sons of Israel assembled with fasting and sackcloth and with dirt upon them. By the way, this would normally, I think, uh, be on the 10th of the month Tishri that they would have it'd be on the 10th and somewhere around the 15th or somewhere in that vicinity was the Feast of Booths so kind of reverse word the 24th day and they want to confess their sins they want this repentance that they had because the word has been uh, given to them so verse 2 we see fasting we see sackcloth we see the dirt upon them right verse verse 1 the descendants of Israel separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of the fathers. This is one of the cries in Nehemiah because the Israelites had married into pagan families. And, that, and there's a call for a separation from them. God had always told them to keep separate. Otherwise, what do you have in danger of? a mixture of the race and all of a sudden you would have that nation no longer being the Israelites that they are, the Jews. So you look at Jews today who are true Jews, that's what they are. It's amazing how that race has been able to keep themselves what uh, what they have been for thousands of years. That's, that's a miracle in itself. Some people will deny the fact that there's any Jews and then I go, well, what do you do about the six million that were killed, you know. What, what, do you, what about those guys that are still living that were um, in the Holocaust that survived it? We're getting down to the very last of those now. Though I think there was one who came out of the Holocaust that died yesterday or the day before. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. So anyway, uh, it says they stood and confessed their sins and their iniquities of their fathers. So they stand, they confess their sins and the iniquities. You have two words there for uh, sins. In the Old Testament, you see three. You get sin, iniquities, and transgressions. Transgressions is easy to understand. Trans means across. Crossing over the line. Somebody puts up a line and they're saying, Do not enter. 
what's the first thing you want to do? You just kind of want to go over there, you know. And, and and that's what you know. God has set His rules, and we just step law. over it. That's the law, isn't it? Uh, sins is missing the mark. Uh, iniquities is just the act of uh, it's rebellion, right? So often in the Old Testament, you'll see those three words either either in the same verse or within uh, the realm of a couple or three verses. Quite frequently, when they're confessing their sins, they'll put all three of those in there. So, and it's the iniquities of their fathers. And that's interesting because they could say, hey, we didn't have anything to do with this. You know? And you blame it on, you know, your parents. Mm-hmm. It's my parents that caused me to be this. And they're always blaming the parents or the, the generation before, the generation there. Well, they see the iniquities and they, it's clearly there as, it's, as the Scripture is read in, in this chapter 9. Uh, but they identify with them because they're part of them. We can we can identify with that because in our nation, you know, we we still are a part of this nation, and so we repent and along for our, our nation. It starts with our own selves first. Uh, verse three: While they stood in their place, they're standing and they're hearing the word of God read again. They read from the book of the law of the Lord Yahweh, their God, for a fourth of the day, and for another fourth they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. So there again, uh, quite an extension of time of reading it. And then what did they do? They confess, they worship. So you have this the fasting, the sackcloth, and ashes, the dirt, confessing their sins, seeing what the nation did as far as their iniquities were. And uh, they pay attention to the word confess they worship God that's what worship is isn't it it's all part of that then it's, they're on a platform again you know as they read the word and all these people And uh, I'm going to make an attempt here of reading these names again now on the Levites platform stood Yeshua Bani Kadmiel Shebaniah Bumi Sherebiah Bani and Chennai they cried out with a loud voice to the Lord their God crying out to the Lord their God. Can you imagine what kind of worship was going on here? Then the Levites, uh, Yeshua, Kadmel, Benai, Hashabiah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, Pethiah, said, Arise! Bless the Lord your God forever and ever. Can you imagine the people all getting up? Now you got maybe something like what? Did we say something like 50,000 here? You know, pretty good uh, amount of people to fill up a stadium. Bush Stadium, they have 40,000 there every night. They don't even have 50,000 there in their new stadium. It's 40-plus. You know, some of the older baseball stadiums used to be 50, 60, 70,000. But uh, you don't really see that anymore. But 50,000 sometimes have been gatherings of people singing and praising God. And boy, that voice just kind of... (laughs) Something all one... So they arise... And what you see here, okay, you have a repentant heart going on. Word of God has been there. And all of a sudden, praise really starts happening. You really have to look at this first. And John Calvin, I, I got a quote from Calvin there. Uh, this is out of his Institutes. Um, the knowledge of God, the Creator. 
He pointed out as we gain some knowledge of God, we'll see how corrupt we are. As we learn more about God, the more corrupt we see ourselves. And then that makes us want to seek Him though, doesn't it? Because we're not as big and high up and great as we think we are. Because when we look at who He is and His holiness, my, how small we start to get. And, uh, you know, man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself, of, of who he is. Man does not really see and know himself until he first looks upon the face of God and he sees his perfect holiness he contemplates, thinks about how great and awesome God is, and then he sees himself. He start start uh, scrutinizing himself, as Calvin says. <laughs> when we really see God for who He is through the Word, uh, that's what happens. We seem to be righteous in our own selves sometimes. We seem to think that we're upright and holy. Well, like Christ, we have been made that way, but. There's a pride in all of us, and we overestimate ourselves. Exactly. That's. That's the problem today. Really, is people really need to see God? They really need to see themselves or who they really are. Right. Well, that that theology of the holiness of God is probably maybe one of the maybe the tops that needs to be put forth today. Uh, Sproul wrote that book, The Holiness of God. Boy, it affected a lot of people. You guys have, have read that, yeah. right? Um, that impacted. I don't know if you ask any people in Reformed theology, um, biggest percentage of them have probably read that book or are very familiar with it. They've heard it. They've heard it taught or whatever. But um, and Sproul was driven by that. That's what R.C. Sproul was about. That's uh, even though he wrote one book. And that he still remains the Absolutely. Absolutely. And how many times when they do conferences? How many times have they done that particular conference? The Holiness of God. Good book for your next yeah, let's see. We got we got the cost of discipleship in the works coming up uh, sometime. We won't put a date on it. No, no pressure here. But that would be great. That would be a classic of our time. Um, like you do Pilgrim's Progress. You go way back then. Knowledge of the Holy. Uh, Tozer? Yeah. Knowledge of the Holy. <laughs> so we can get some grasp of what uh, some of these are. But... Um, Whenever we see God, we we're convinced, we're convicted that outside of Christ we are unrighteous, and uh, we need to be convicted by what 
God God says, and and then also see His abundant mercy. So we we just don't stay in in the sin part. And abundant mercy. Now in this text that we have, we have a whole chapter here, but the dominant theme all throughout here is really mercy, loving kindness, of God, and and it, and it all starts with exalting God and how glorious His name is. That's really what you're going to see in here. Even though you see where Israel fails sometimes, <laughs> which was many times, yet at the same time, look at this. This is tremendous praise here. Um, so you get exaltation and glory right there in verse 5. Arise. Bless the Lord. You know that song, God Bless America? I saw on Facebook the other day and I said, yeah, that's a good way to put it. The guy said, America, bless God. Yeah. God bless America? God bless America, yeah. Yeah. That says too much, doesn't it? Oh, it's so true. Bless the Lord, that's Yahweh's personal name, his covenant name, your God forever and ever. Bless Him. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, all my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His soul. Right out of Psalms. Blessed be. Yeah. Blessed be Your name. So bless God, right? And and we see that in sounds familiar in Second Corinthians, seven, chapter one. Bless God. We, so we talked about that a lot. Uh, in verse six, you see the Creator here. Uh, oh, oh, in in five. Oh, may your glorious name. We, we have to stop there from a glorious name, and name means all that He is, is glorious, all that He is. Be blessed, to be praised, exalted above all blessing and praise. He loves His glory. Put on this way. Put on this way. That's what it's all about. That's where it all starts, doesn't it? At the National Day of Prayer, where Erwin Luther spoke at the Capitol. Yeah. Um, after the, the speeches and his, his addressing the group and everything and some prayer, um, I won't say that it was a it was a mighty rush of exaltation, but it was at least somebody was thinking right because the person leading the praise at the end just focused on that refrain, we exalt thee, we exalt thee, we exalt thee, oh Lord. And it was just repeated and repeated, often after it all through that rotunda. that that sounded and must have sounded really good in that room it was like yes that's what that's that's what the church that's why we're here exalt him yeah just a simple little song there but boy did it say a lot who else can you think about you know it was all in unison and and then there were some harmonies being done <laughs> that had to be really good. Really good. Yeah, that's boy. So this guy, this what it's about. Me of that, a bit. 
So verse 5, oh boy, you could spend a lot of time on that. Verse 6 is, you alone are the Lord. Now he's going to talk about the Creator here. You made the heavens, the heavens, the heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to all of them, and the heavenly host bows down before you. So there's dealing with His glory. Now we deal with the Creator. How many, you go into the Psalms, how often does it talk about the Creator? Yeah. And of course, people... Or, you know, they have their own ideas. The world has their own ideas where we all came from, and never includes um, the Creator. And of course, today, and um, you have have a name for uh, a you know, at least an, an intelligence, uh, intelligent design. As Christians use that as a medium to get to, hey, there's something more than that. But there are scientists that aren't Christians don't even have uh, you know that would not profess Jesus Christ but still yet they use their brain enough to say they right. believe in intelligent design okay okay now they're on they don't want to commit intellectual suicide right but at least and, and when, even when they say intelligent design it almost is I mean that's incredible right. I mean as a matter of fact if you happen to be anybody in an institution you don't believe in intelligent design I mean, get kicked out of there as it has happened so often but um, yeah ultimately I mean Jesus is the creator isn't he yeah. I mean he is the one the back creator back to the beginning <laughs> back to the beginning rewind be kind and rewind be kind and rewind 7 and 8 talks about how faithful he is you are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out from Ur of the Chaldees and gave him the name Abraham. Abraham. Abram means father of one. Abraham means father of multitude. God did all that. He brought him out of there. He chose him. He brought him out. Abraham was, Abraham was, or Abram was, uh, was a pagan. He was an idolater. Until God came to him. You found his heart faithful before you and made a covenant with him to give him. This is the Abrahamic covenant. This is unconditional. There is the Mosaic covenant, which is conditional if you do these things, right? The Abrahamic covenant are promises given to Abraham through his people, through his seed nation of Israel and it's also promised to the nations and that comes to us promised theology we get to get on on that so gives them the land of the Canaanite of the Hittite and the Amorite of the Perizzite the Jebusite and the Girgashite to give it to his descendants and you have fulfilled your promise for you are righteous they're drawing upon what who he is that's really where they hit at and what he has done um, verse 9 through 15 is going to be dealing with deliverance and providing while he delivers he just doesn't leave them out and say okay you guys got to figure this out you know I'm out of here now okay no he's right there with a what fire by day or fire cloud by day fire by night he provides for them everything they needed. He says, You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt. 
as they were slaves and heard their cry by the Red Sea because they were getting ready to be destroyed. (laughs) Then you performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted... Now here's what he did. Uh, There's his deliverance, his provision. And then you get in a little verse in here that says, for you knew that they acted arrogantly toward them and made a name for yourself as it is this day. He he looks at Egypt and of course how they looked upon Israel and of course he starts getting upon, you know, people. Um but God makes a name for himself. Uh, you know, that song called Famous One. Uh, we exist to make him famous. Make a name. You made a name for yourself. You know, it almost Fear God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Beware. That's right. That's all part of it, isn't it? You divided the sea before them, so they passed through the midst of the sea on dry ground, and their pursuers you hurled into the depths. Well, there's a wrath of God right there, isn't it? Look what he did to the Egyptians. Let a stone like a stone into the raging waters. With a pillar of cloud you led them by day and with a pillar of fire by night to light for them the way in which they were to go. Then you came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven. You gave them just ordinances and true laws, good statutes and commandments, all the principles to live by. He's such a good God that He not only delivers them out and He says, I want you to know who I am. Yeah, of course, they're going to show that they can't do these things, and God just keeps magnifying His uh, His mercy. You know, you think of um, verse ten there: perform signs and wonders against Pharaoh, um, make a name for himself. And you think about for this reason, I allowed you to remain in order to show you my power. This is in Exodus nine sixteen. I allowed you, Pharaoh, to remain. Why? To show you my power and in order to proclaim my name. That's the reason I've even left you to be here through all this time, you know, throughout all the earth. Uh, in Romans 9.17, Paul starts asserting God's sovereignty. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. Do you ever think that's why we got the leaders we got right now? Yeah, oh yeah. That's right. And he's going to harden some of those leaders. And he could show mercy on some of them too. Wouldn't it be amazing if he saved Obama? Wouldn't it be amazing? I mean... I'm not saying he's going to do it, but he could do it. How about Bill Clinton and Hillary? Trump. Just keep on. He could do that. I'm not saying it's going to happen, but he can do those kind of things. But he didn't harden them. Well, yeah, you start seeing who God is. Then what kind of repentance would come out of there if if it was true? It would be real, true repentance, wouldn't it? He has mercy on whoever trusts in Christ, and he hardens all those who reject Christ. The potter. I am the potter. You are the clay. He withholds his mercy. 
He gives mercy. And it's solely on His good pleasure. It's never because, yeah, but He saw you were going to have faith. Never does that happen. It's all about whom He wants for His good pleasure. Salvation is not man-centered. It is God-centered. It's it's about making God look good. Because He is. (laughs) He is. There's a book called God's Passion for His Glory. And in that book, it's about uh, Jonathan Edwards and bringing on the thought of a God-centered thought. God is the most God-centered person in the universe, isn't He? (laughs) He's God. Chief end is glorify God and enjoy His glory forever in that sense. We may think about centering our lives on God and yet sometimes we want Him that way so that He would bring some glory or self-esteem to us. Um, God loves His glory. And that's the whole foundation. It starts, starts with Him for His own sake. It says in Ephesians 1, 6, 6, the question can be this, why did God predestine us in love to be His sons? Ephesians 1, 6 and 12 and 14 says that the glory of His grace might be praised. So these Israelites are, are seeing here as He operated with the nation of Israel, looking at His mercy. God's most fundamental allegiance is to His own glory. I mean, that is what He's all about. Everything's summed up in that. I've heard people say, what kind of God is that that would always want people to glorify Him? Well, if there's anything less, He's a liar. Because His glory is something to boast in because there's nothing like... What can compare to that? But that's they, they get mad at God. As a matter of fact, they don't even want anything to do with God later on as they think about it even more. They can't believe that God would want to have praise and glory. And you look in the Old and, Te- Old and New Testament, that's what it's all about. That's what we're here for is to give glory to Him. Because they don't recognize who the Father is. Right. What's salvation basically about? So I can get saved. Um, what's the biggest reason? That it would glorify God. So that turns it around. The man-centered view of, of our day uh, in, in the, most of the churches is that man would be able to choose God out of his own free will, and, but God in His mercy and grace saves you, but still you, you have something to do with that, and now you get a little bit of glory in that. That's the, that's the thought. Secondarily, it is for our benefit. Because there's no doubt. We do benefit out of this, right? No doubt. We always have to be thinking, how do we give Him glory, right? Isaiah 43, 7. Here's a selfish God. I'm glad He is. Everyone who is called by My name and whom I have created for My glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. 
I created for my glory. That's the real reason. Created us, saves us, delivers us for His glory. That's the biggest reason. So, all through here, you see about God's glory, God's mercy. The point just kind of flows out. Um, And I think that many Christians today think that God's mercy and grace are contingent upon our faith. Or even worse, on our works. (laughs) Scripture plainly, I think very much plainly declares that our faith and our works are contingent on God's mercy and grace. It's not contingent upon if we believe in Him. It's contingent upon His mercy and grace. Ephesians 2, that's... Uh, Ephesians 2, the first three verses, talks about how dead we are. What does Ephesians 2, verse 4 say? first two words are, but God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together. Is that clear or what? We were dead. How could we even drum up some kind of faith when we were dead. And it says, He made us alive. Mercy and grace. Um, Acts 11.18, Philippians 1.29, we see that uh, repentance, we see that faith is all granted to us. It all has to do with God's glory. God did it. gets all the glory. So Nehemiah 9 shows the proneness of man to sin. We're getting about near the end of this. I don't think I'll probably try to cover this whole chapter. But it's really uh, relating to what happened with the children of Israel and and God when they were in the wilderness and there on. I don't know where I quit reading yet. Cloud by day, fire by night. um, Oh, the, the law, verse 13. Verse 14. So you made known to them your holy Sabbath. Um... The Sabbath rest ultimately is what it means. The Sabbath is, is rest, isn't it? It's all about rest. They rest in Him. Christ has fulfilled the Sabbath. Did we talk about these feasts? That was the weekly feast that they did constantly. The Sabbath. Huge feast. Go to worship God. The Sabbath has been completed by Christ. We enter into His rest, as Hebrews 4 says. So there's the Sabbath. So somebody gives you some kind of legal thing that you have to worship on the seventh day of the week, like on Saturday, then you can say, well, you know, Christ has fulfilled that too, like He fulfilled all these other feasts. He is our Sabbath. He is our rest. So you made known to them your holy Sabbath and laid down for them commandments, statutes, and law through your servant Moses. You provided bread from heaven. So He gives the Word of God, and then He gives them physical food. He gives them spiritual food, gives them physical food. Absolutely taking care of them out in a desert where there is nothing. <laughs> Unbelievable. There's a lot of reasons why He took them out there in that wilderness. A lot of tests there, and it really showed where they were really at, though, too, didn't it? But He was going to provide everything that they needed. Be fed every day. Have water. First thing you're concerned about you go into a desert is water. What are you going to do? And of course, he let them out there for a little while, but they didn't have water. Did they think that he was going to deliver them all the, all the way through and then not give them that? Yeah, but the reality is their mouths were really dry. <laughs> and it was getting drier. 
but he was going to provide. And we know he did. But the rock. And the rock out in the wilderness was representing Christ. <laughs> Another type. You provided bread from heaven. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. You provided bread from heaven for them for their hunger. You brought forth water from a rock for them for their thirst. From a rock. A dry rock. What do they say about rocks? Dumb as a rock. Can't get water out of a rock. Can't get water out of a rock. Oh, you don't know the God of... You told them to enter in in order to possess the land which you swore to give. He's going to do that. He says, I've got a land for you. A land of milk and honey. (laughs) Well, listen, that's a good place to stop there. Because what happens is we see that they become very arrogant and stubborn. They don't listen. They don't remember And yet God forgives. (laughs) Amazing. Amazing. And there's an ongoing repentance. But anyway, that is a little bit of that chapter, but it gives a really good history. Do you see what they needed to see first? How great God is. How can we forget? It's easy to forget. As soon as he gave them some manna, and then there was the deal with the the water, and you know, and then some little test would come along, and they'd be complaining again. Isn't that us? That's kind of what we do. It hasn't changed. We we are prone to sin, as the as the song says, prone to wander, right? But God's mercy, we're not to presume upon it, but yet we can tend to do that. Thank the Lord that He uh, has delivered us, continues to deliver us, and will deliver us, as our Second Corinthians chapter one talked about yesterday. Thank you guys for coming out. On a night where it's actually really warm out. Provided a nice place to meet. Get around the Word of God. Great people to worship with. It's all about Him. That's why we're here. It was only for His glory and nothing else, was it? Well, you give me some prayer. Sure.